This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books uh, in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Justin McGeary, one of the regular hosts for this channel. And today we will be talking about the book On Theology, Herman Boving's Academic Orations, published by Brill 2021. And I'm talking today with the translator and editor, Bruce Pass. Uh, Bruce, welcome to the show. Hello, Justin. Lovely to be here. These uh, four speeches were written by the late 19th, early 20th century Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink. And as the title indicates, the speeches are his academic addresses, which he gave at uh, different points in his career as a theology professor. Two of the speeches were from his years at the Kampen Theological School, and two are from his years at the Free University of Amsterdam, which was established by the other Dutch theologian, statesman, pastor, journalist, Abraham Kuyper. Um, in one sense, the leader of the neo-Calvinist movement uh, at the time. And this volume also includes a very helpful introduction by uh, the editor-translator, providing some important contextual uh, setup for each of the speeches, as well as some explanation and analysis of the speeches. So he lists uh, a few of the key themes that you can find throughout the speeches, but also points to some interesting features of Boving's thought. Um, And this is... This translation is one of those, uh, uh, a number of translations that are coming into the English language uh, by these uh, Dutch neo-Calvinist thinkers and uh, probably will continue to play a significant role in the burgeoning uh, Bavink scholarship. So Bruce, really interesting group of speeches. But before we talk about Bavink, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, thank you, Justin. Yeah. Um, Well, yes, I... um came to Bavink uh, in my undergrad theological studies and uh, was increasingly intrigued by his work. Uh, and it's during my doctoral studies at the University of Edinburgh um, that I became interested in, in translating these speeches. Um, I was aware of some of Bavink's academic orations, firstly through some English translations that had already been done. So uh, Common Grace had been translated uh, some time ago uh, in the Calvin Theological Journal, and I'd read that. But I remember when I first started reading Bavink, thinking uh, that, wow, uh, modernism and orthodoxy seems like such an important uh, publication, and it would be great to have that one in English. Um, so uh, to translate these four speeches became a, a side project while I did my doctorate and uh, Modernism and Orthodoxy was one of the speeches that I translated. Um, And 
This was a great journey of discovery because in back in the 60s, Jan Feinhoff, I think it was, who said that next to reform dogmatics, the most important works Barvink wrote are these speeches. And uh, it's quite funny because uh, they're quite long and you can imagine sitting at a graduation ceremony with Barvink talking for hours. <laughs> but um, evidently he didn't deliver the whole thing uh, as a speech. He, he did a slightly shortened version at the ceremony and then a slightly longer text was published after the fact. So, uh, you know, maybe those Dutch students aren't quite as uh, amazing as uh, they first seem. <laughs> that actually is something that occurred to me um, was how long the, it would have been to sit through one of these. That's right. Uh, so that's, these, that's a clarifying point. One of these speeches is 20,000 words. That, that's a that's a very long speech. Uh, so even if he's speaking relatively quickly, 150 words a minute, uh, you can do the maths and work out <laughs> yeah. how long it would take to actually read the whole thing. Yeah. It, it, I think it was um, James Eglinton's biography on Bob Inc., um, where at one point, it, I think it was Bob Inc. was critical of American audiences for some of his speeches. And I kind of being like, well, I enjoyed reading these, but I don't know that I could sit through it. So <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a, that's a helpful point. Yeah. So I think, um, look, I think that's also the case when he did his stone lectures uh, at Princeton uh, that, uh, you know, what we have is the stone lectures is a bit longer than what he actually delivered in person in Princeton. Yeah. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of um, context for some of the speeches as well as, you know, where some of Bing's, uh, Bobbing's bio fits in with that. Yeah. So I selected these speeches uh, for a couple, a couple of different reasons. Uh, thematically, they connect to uh, the same topic of theological method. And so there's a thematic unity there. Like the first speech where he talks about you know, the discipline of theology um, or what he, you know, in, in, in Dutch, the Wetenschap, the, the science of theology, um, that in itself requires a bit of explanation because we don't talk about a science of theology in English. Uh, that's quite confusing. We think about biology as a science, but in the, especially in the, in the European discourse of the 19th century, science is being used uh, in terms of, of a university discipline, like a, a field of inquiry where you have knowledge that is generated uh, by the inquiry. So uh, that's what is being discussed, you know, the discipline of theology, as it were. Uh, that's, that's the first speech, and that's right at the beginning of his academic career. So he delivered that speech when he was appointed to the Compton Theological School just after he finished his doctorate and did a year of parish ministry. And then the final speech is actually uh, the last work where he directly addresses theology is it's modernism and orthodoxy. It's 1911, so it's not right at the end of his life, uh, but uh, George Haring describes it as a bit of a swan song in some ways. Um, so you get a nice coverage of the development of Barbink's thought, and in between... I included religion and theology, which is a really important speech that he delivered at the beginning of his tenure in Amsterdam. And there are certain echoes between uh, 
that speech and the science of holy theology. He even mentions that speech because when he began at Compton, makes him think about that. And then he's effectively talking about the same topic, but with the benefit of uh, all those years' experience. Uh, and the, the second speech uh, is called The Teaching Office, and that's just a fascinating one that he comes out of the um, church political question of, um, you know, what relationship does the free university stand to the Dutch churches, the denomination, and uh, in what relationship does uh, free academic inquiry stand to the preparation of ministers of the word. And so there's a lot of um, wrangling, uh, trying to unify the Kampen Theological School and the Free University, and Bavink was supporting Kuiper in, in that, but it never it never happened. But this speech comes out of that uh, church political situation that unfolded over a very long time. But Barvik is actually exploring a question uh, closely connected. What is the relationship between the teaching that a minister does in the pulpit, the teaching that a professor does at a seminary, and say, you know, the the academic inquiry that a theologian might do, uh, whether that's in historical theology or constructive theology, in what sense is there a relationship between those three things? And, and so he's talking at the you know, the office of a teacher because in the uh, canons of Dort, uh, they have they identify four offices, not just a an elder and a and a deacon, as it were. Um, but the teacher is one of those. So university professor is a church office, and so um, it's the launching pad for an, a very interesting uh, exploration of theology. Where does theology sit in relation to the church as opposed to sacred doctrine? So uh, to me, yeah, that's a really intriguing speech. And I, I think it's uh, in many ways, it's classic Barvink. It, the one thing that stood out to me as I was going through it was how much time he gave to the history of the university. Um, that was a surprise to me. Um, and as you pointed out, he's, he is trying to, he, he's looking at the relationship of theology as a study to multiple institutions, uh, the church, the yeah, state, Yeah, so that's what university. makes it so contemporary, that he will be addressing this question, which is still a problem. You know, what is the relationship of these different institutions and where does theology fit? Uh, for example, you still have theology at British universities. Um, you don't really have theology at any of the Australian universities. You, you have it in some of the Ivy Leagues still with Harvard Divinity School. Um, it's an interesting question still is what do we do with theology? But this historical overview that you mentioned, I think, is uh, it's kind of the, the great strength and the Achilles heel of Barvik's whole method of thinking. Uh, and it shows what a product of the 19th century he is. That It's a very 19th century way of thinking that if you're asked a question uh, then the only way to approach it is to tell a narrative. You know, spin. You know, you, you must approach this historically, and Barving does this all the time. So, um, uh, I note in the introduction that some of the newspaper reviews of this speech are quite intriguing because, uh, you know, the newspaper reporters speak very candidly, and often uh, they're more perceptive than perhaps a, an academic might be who's listening to it all and. 
one of them says, you know, Bavink is plainly very learned, but I'm not sure we're any clearer uh, having listened to all of that. And that, to be honest, that, that, that can be the, the great weakness of this historical overview, this historiographical way of presenting a theological argument is that um, you, you can just end up in the end with this um, narrative, but the nub of the question in some ways can be left unanswered. Um, but I loved actually just, um, I think, the great strength of Barbic, though, is also that he won't begin to think about a question until he knows what has been said about it across the 2,000-year history of the church. And because he was such a good um, student of languages, he can engage with all of the literature in original languages. I mean, the man knew Arabic as well as um, the biblical languages in Latin. Not that he's reading much Arabic, of course, in, in this discussion, but uh, some of the stuff that he draws out about the PhD and where it came from and the significance of it is just fascinating for the question of what does it mean to teach? Uh, so he draws on the idea of having a license to teach that is granted by the Pope, but also um, after the Protestant Reformation, how how that proceeds uh, yeah, so I, I found I found that speech actually the most illumining in some ways, even if it's uh, nowhere near as theologically interesting as uh, modernism and orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that was I think he did, and that was very helpful, um, especially considering these speeches have not been uh, available in English, was you traced a few themes um, across across them. Um, one being the influence of Schleiermacher. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what you see uh, of Bavink and how is he, how's he engaging Schleiermacher? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the use of Schleiermacher in Bavink is still a field of inquiry that there's a lot to do still there. Uh, so I mentioned in the introduction, Corey Brock wrote a nice book on Bavink and Schleiermacher and uh, concentrates on how he uses the uh, the same vocabulary. So there's a formal appropriation, as it were, of Schleiermacher. Uh, but I suggest in the introduction that there's actually a great deal of material appropriation of Schleiermacher, and that comes out in the speeches. Um, and I mentioned a few things, but uh, the more you look into Barbing, the more, the more you'll recognize this material appropriation Schleiermacher and uh, some examples of that is you know like his he uses the trope of a prince of the church um, he talks about theology as the crown or the jewel in the crown of the theological sciences and um, there's all of this stuff that comes straight out of um, the brief uh, the brief outline for a study of theology um, famously well not famous well, I guess it depends how famous it is is whether anyone's read our books but he he uh, he identifies the seed of religion in Calvin with Schleiermacher's feeling of absolute dependence, which is an extraordinary thing to say um, and very interesting the, the way he, he will stitch Schleiermacher into Calvin just in his historic, historiographical argument that way. It's, not a, it's, it's a very positive thing to do, you know. Um, so there's just so much to do with Schleiermacher still, but... Um, the, I, I suggest that the interesting thing with Schleiermacher in these speeches is the way 
you see an anti-secularization argument. So Schleiermacher um, is viewed by Bavink as a co-belligerent against secularism. You know, Schleiermacher is a white knight rescuing the church, and that's what Schleiermacher does so well at, at one level, and Bavink liked that very much. And um, this whole idea of speeches is interesting too, because famously Schleiermacher wrote on religion, speeches to its cultured despisers. Um, so I think at that level, there's some interesting uh, resonances with Schleiermacher uh, when Bavink and Schleiermacher are battling a kind of secularizing impulse which comes out of the Enlightenment. And this comes out very strongly, actually, in uh, a work I'm working on at the moment, The Foremost Problems of Contemporary Dogmatics, a very long series of lectures Bavink wrote. It's over 300 pages. Um, and uh, the way he characterizes Schleiermacher and Kant and Hegel in those lectures, uh, he, he describes them all as friends rather than foes. Um, the real foes are the materialists and the atheists and uh, the Enlightenment rationalists. And it's just very interesting that he doesn't view these three thinkers as belonging to that category. There's a great quote where he says, you know, Kant is no Sadducee. <laughs> Such a great line. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. You you did, uh, you point to the connection between, for the third speech, which is on religion and theology, that uh, that Bavink has this um, seeming uh, engagement with Schleiermacher on that particular speech. Um, but the, the fourth speech uh, have a you is essentially Bavink sort of defending the neo-Calvinist movement. Uh, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about how he tries to distinguish what they're doing in with in the modern times with traditional theology, so to speak, versus uh, say a mediating theology. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, and that's, that's what makes this speech interesting because it shows how uh, the contemporary reception of Bavik and Kuiper, um, you know, they were having to defend their credentials that they weren't modern theologians, whereas uh, it's kind of the other way around these days. So you have to have a bit of trouble convincing people that they are modern thinkers. Um, and so uh, the basic argument that Bavink is trying to make is that um, they – they're different to modern theologians, but there's also some very clever rhetoric where Bavink is wanting to um, argue that uh, even the most liberal of liberal theologians are actually more orthodox than they are willing to admit. And um, uh, he, he, he went to this Congress of liberal theologians and gave a speech and actually made that argument. It's like Daniel in the lion's den. Um, so Bavink was a terrific debater. Um, you know, we, it must have been impressive to hear him make that argument um, at this Congress. But basically, you know, he, he says, you know, whenever a liberal theologian prays, um, you know, he's dining off orthodoxy. There's a supernaturalistic element there. Um, and, and even significant just that he brings it down to prayer because that's a praxis. And I think um, one of the interesting things in Bavink is there's this almost pragmatist emphasis on praxis. You know, what you do discloses truth. You know, forms of life are actually where you get a glimpse of reality. And the fact that he focuses on prayer is a really interesting one. 
so yeah, mod- modernism and orthodoxy is very interesting. It's also interesting because you see a very clear example of um, the way German idealism frames the way he thinks because he wants to distinguish between the representation and the idea. And that's a very idealist way of looking at things. And uh, he wants to say that, you know, you can keep a modern representation of the world as long as you don't have the modern idea of the world. And so in other words, you can, you know, you can read your biology textbook and still be a Christian is, is what he's wanting to say. Uh, but for that, you need a Christian worldview. And that's where um, the, the worldview stuff starts to become very important in Barvink in this later period. Uh, so you need a Christian worldview in order to uh, to do biology properly. That's kind of what he's saying. I know that you have to run here, but my uh, last question just for is the the act of the work of translating Bavink, how would you say that it has helped your understanding of him as a writer, as a thinker? Oh, look, you know, there's go, this is one of the great things that James Eglinton uh, does and did with his students. He, uh, he encourages students to work from the original languages, which... Uh, which is just terrific. Uh, that was very much part of my undergraduate training. Um, and he also gets students to do a little bit of paleography as well, you know, handwriting. How do you read Barvink handwriting? Because there's a lot of works that are not published, um, a lot of material there that you can read just in handwriting. Um, so I would say that um, if you limit yourself to what's published and what's published in English, um, you're incredibly limited in the way you can understand a thinker and so it's terrific that James encouraged us to um, uh, to learn Dutch as well as we could um, and certainly for me uh, yeah reading all this material that's not in English has has really been very focal for all of my work in Bavink and I think it's just one way that you can serve a broader community by translating and uh, I began noticing that a lot of people actually have done theological translations as a part of their learning process. So if you look at a lot of contemporary theologians, you'll see that they have done this. So I would say it's also an essential part of your development as a thinker that you need to um, sit closely with a thinker in their mother tongue. And it slows you down when you read their works. Um, it also makes you pause to think, you know, what, what is really being communicated? Um, so, yeah, it's been a central part of my work for some time. And uh, it's wonderful the way James uh, insists that his students uh, work from the Dutch. Yeah. yeah, and I know translating is often a thankless task. task. <laughs> so that's uh, much appreciated because for those of us who can't reach the, read Dutch, it's very helpful. So you are working on some other things, um, translations, editing projects. Could you just list those off real quick for us so that people, listeners can know what to look for? Yeah, just as I mentioned, um, finishing up work on uh, a fairly long book. It's over 300 pages, The Foremost Problems of Contemporary Dogmatics. It's a series of lectures that Barvink wrote after he moved to Amsterdam. Uh, So it looks like he wrote them in 1903, 1904. Uh, but continued to deliver these lectures and work on them uh, up to 1919 even, so not long before he died. Um, And it's where he wants to explore, as the title would suggest, what he perceives to be the foremost problems 
in in contemporary theology, uh, and in classic Barnick style, he um, does that by exploring uh, the history of thought. So, but the interesting thing is, it's a very different history to the one you get in Reformed dogmatics, and. Um, uh, as you work through this, it becomes clear that he thinks that the conceptualization of the act of faith is the most important dogmatic problem, which is, <laughs> I must admit, I was, even after all the Barbink I've read, I, I was surprised to read that. Um, and it's very, very interesting. The, uh, um, the depth of engagement with uh, particularly Ritchell and Trolch, but also Kant, Hegel and Schleiermacher is just remarkable. Uh but as uh, with anything Barvink writes, you don't just need Dutch, you need German and Latin and the biblical languages. So he works in many different languages. So it's a big project and uh, hopefully we can be done with it soon. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Nice to chat. Yeah, absolutely.